This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Cloud. I, I, I could just listen to this for a long time. But I can also listen to Brian White from Drexel Hamilton tell us about why the cloud business at Oracle, which grew like gangbusters in the quarter that they reported last night, uh, wasn't good enough for Wall Street. Uh, Brian joined us right now on the phone. And Brian, uh, um, the numbers are good. The guidance is a lot for cloud growth is a lot slower. A growth of what about fifty three percent? I think in a year of year basis, but next quarter, guiding the next year down to the low twenties. But that's after uh, the anniversary of a uh, of the big NetSuite acquisition. That still seems pretty good for me in a pretty big business. Yeah, you're right, Corey. It was actually a very good quarter, um, as you mentioned. The cloud business came up a little bit short, one point five three billion. We're at one point five seven billion. And really where they saw most of that in the quarter was in their uh, platform as a service, infrastructure as a service business. Uh, so they had some Pass, legacy as they business. call it. Yes. With two Pass A's. infrastructure as a service. And that was down 10% year over year. So that, that was, um, you know, the bulk of the miss. I will tell you, I think going forward, a lot of um, analysts might have had their SaaS numbers uh, too high. So when they gave guidance on the cloud, um, SaaS is a big part of that. Brian, can you just explain the transition that Oracle is making? They're not alone in making this transition and how that also affects things such as software licenses and uh, hardware sales. Yeah, so Oracle is, um, you know, the number one player in the database market. Um, they're in the enterprise application middleware, and they have some hardware, and they're moving the software pieces of that from a license uh, to a subscription model. And a lot of times um, it could take three to four years just to reach revenue break even on, uh, on moving into the cloud, which is a subscription model. So it takes time, and they've been doing it now for just over three years. And what about the cost? In other words, does the cost to the customer decrease because of this subscription model? Will Oracle take in less money? So the nice thing is, over the lifetime of a customer, for example, instead of licensing an enterprise app, you move into the cloud, uh, for Oracle, over the lifetime of that customer, it means about three times the revenue. Now, for the customer, uh, the benefit is um, they'll get updates faster. Uh, they'll get the support of Oracle. Um, if there's, you know, the infrastructure cost uh, will be in Oracle's cloud, so you won't have to buy the servers to support that. So there, there's a lot of benefits. I think long term, um, both parties end up winning. Um, so, you know, as we look at this business, I mean, uh, what, because it really does seem, you know, the Soxel office, I recall a lot last quarter, I guess, if I use the wonders of the Bloomberg terminal, which would let me just type in ORCL equity, uh, SERP, SERP for surprise, it shows me what the stock did. And, and, uh, uh, the day after they reported, yeah, the day after they reported last quarter, stock was down 8%, down 4.4% today. What is it about this company that has it, you know, beating estimates, but, but disappointing investors? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think, you know, I, I would go back to uh, NetSuite, and uh, that was acquired just over a year ago, so it closed uh, November 6, 2016. 
And that really skewed, I think, the seasonality, as analysts thought about the seasonality. Um, and that was embedded in the models going forward. And now analysts have been a little bit surprised. What do you so, mean skewed the seasonality? I don't, I don't, what do you mean? Um, just the quarter-on-quarter seasonality of the the revenue in the cloud business. So the belief you know, that, 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 what, that the fourth quarter is always going to be big for Oracle or for calendar uh, uh, what, for them, I'm sorry, calendar fourth quarter for them is what? This one, second quarter? Fiscal second? Yeah, so you, usually their biggest quarter will be um, their fourth uh, fiscal quarter, which would be a, a May quarter. Right. And and then you'll see. Um, but the, the, the magnitude of seasonality, you know, across the different quarters in terms of sequential growth um, is, 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 you know, can vary a lot, right? And so first quarter for them uh, falls off quite a bit, and that's the August quarter. And then the uh, final quarter, or the May quarter, is actually very, very strong. But even in between, we don't have a long history in SaaS, right? And they're winning new business. And, and so kind of looking at how the, the sequential trends are trending over a long history, we don't have it. And the NetSuite makes it even worse. So, so uh, let me paraphrase, if I may. So they, bu- they buy this big company, NetSuite, slap on a bunch of new cloud revenues because every quarter they're reporting for the first time, it's sort of a big new addition over the previous year. It's hard to see where seasonality is, but now we're, yes. we can see it. Exactly, that's exactly what's happening. And so, um, it's like the honeymoon. Know, for, so, it's like your first year of marriage. Everything's exactly. great. Then wait. <laughs> then wait. So you know they have some quarters that I think people are just going to have to get used to getting beyond um, uh, Netsuite and understanding how this model works a little better. I think it's nothing more than that because I feel very good about the long term of what Oracle's doing in the cloud, and they're the only ones that have all three layers of the cloud, and that's very differentiated. Uh, uh, Brian, uh, just quickly, does this new model uh, mean that you're not going to need as many sales uh, people at uh, at Oracle in order to sell the products? That's heresy. Yeah, I think, you know, they've got a, what they've done is, uh, well, I would say over time that that might be true. I think they've done a pretty good job of uh, retraining a lot of um, their salespeople. And, and I think the way they, you know, the salespeople now get paid, you know, whether it's SaaS or license, they get paid the same way and do what the customer wants, right? And so I think that's how they're, they're trained today. But do you need less over time? Um, you may need a little less, but I think they're a pretty strong sales organization, so I expect them to still focus in that area, for sure. Brian White, great stuff. Uh, Brian White uh, covers Oracle for Drexel Hamilton. What more could you ask for? Food. Walter Robbins talking about food, former Whole Foods CEO. And uh, Patrick Bultima, the CEO of a company called Food Maven, and they work together on a new business, uh, looking at unused food that is tossed out every day and finding a way to sell it. Um, well, Walter and Patrick Welton of Bloomberg Markets with um, Corey Johnson, Pim Fox with us as well. And, and I wonder, um, describe to me what's happening right now with the food that you guys are making a business out of. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture tells us that 40% of everything that U.S. agriculture produces is thrown away. A third of what's going into landfills is, is food waste. But those are really just the symptoms. It really happens in the, big, in the big food system. And there's all kinds of ways that the system just sheds food. Let me just put some numbers on that for you. So if you figure the grocery market in the U.S. is about $1.1 trillion, plus or minus, and you take uh, basically 40% of that waste, you're looking at a, a market size of something like 400 uh, bill, 400 million, 400 well, no, I, billion. I, I get that. It's big it's math. Yeah, a big, lot of, big okay, opportunity. I get it. But, yeah. 
But Walter, let me ask you, what food is being throw, thrown away? I mean, obviously, food scraps are being thrown away, but, but that's not a business you guys, I can imagine, uh, unless, you're, unless you're waste management, Walter. What, what do you <laughs> see for a business of, of, uh, of, of food that can be sold? What you see is you see a food system essentially that you have. Let me give you an example. There's a there's a load of butter lettuce that gets shipped into one of our DCs, for example. It gets kicked or distribution uh, pushed centers. out. Distribution centers, right? For some for some quality reason. For some, who knows? Does the farmer want it back at that point? No, they don't. Where does it go? Does it go to the landfill? Or can, is there is there a market that can be made uh, to 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 get some value from that product for all the stakeholders? And that's exactly what happens here, where where the uh, the food maven steps in, makes that market, creates the picks up the product, stores it, and finds a market for it. So essentially, you're capturing food that is perfectly good food that may have a little. Uh, you know, a cosmetic defect, and is turning it into a valuable product that can be used, uh, uh, say, in food service or other channels. And oftentimes, it's really a function of oversupply because the system really lacks the flexibility. And so, everybody has accepted this you know, expectation that we always have everything all the time, and the system oversupplies to do that. So, it's seconds, it's oversupply, and then local food as well. And so, those are the categories that we capture. Great but, food, just I, lost. I think what he's referring to is, is this the, the stuff that's left over at the end of the day of every supermarket? A day the answer is no because that's that is true and that's a, it's a different set of problems but but here you got a chicken company for example is manufacturing chicken and some load comes out uh, it comes out uh, different than they expected where does that go the customer doesn't want that particular because they have a spec that can come to Food Maven Food Maven can make a market for that Wait, and, what do you mean uh, different than they expected like it comes well, out let's say it's, yeah it's smaller no. than the spec let's say somebody says I want the chicken I want it three pounds and it comes right. out two and a half or let's say it's got a little bit of a nick on the wing or whatever it is all the things that happen in the production of food, all that food is, if it doesn't meet a certain cosmetic standard, it just gets booted out. Oh, so uh, really uh, no uh, systematic that's, that's what I wanted you to get to, was the yeah. cosmetic nature of this, so it, that, that at a certain point in time, McDonald's bred a certain kind of potato that might be really bad for you, but wouldn't have any spots on it. But uh, and, and so this this gives us you know the McDonald's French fry that looks perfect and maybe isn't so great for you. But yeah, I wonder when it comes to cosmetics, who's willing to buy cosmetically unappealing food? Well, it's not it's not unappealing. It may just be the potato is slightly misshapen, or or it could be the potato is too large. We're selling to food service to restaurants, institutional kitchens that are no, going to actually yeah. prepare that food. And so the, that retail cosmetic spec is really not. It's not a quality of food issue. It's just the kind of you know, unique requirement of retail. But let's just talk about that for a minute, what you just said, because listen, we're wasting over a third of the food that we're producing in this country. You know, in Texas alone, for example, there's 20 million kids that are food insecure. So we've got a moral question here with respect to what's happening to this food. It's being produced, it's sitting there in all these different places, and it's not being used. And so the social impact potential for Food Maven is enormous to take and basically serve something on the... I haven't seen in all my years in the grocery business, I've not seen a sustainable business model, a scalable business model in the back end of the food chain. I've just not seen it. This is the first one I've seen that actually attempts to take on the back end of the, of the food chain and say, here, we're going to create something that's going to not only create value for the, for the producer, also for, for, the, uh, for the recipient or the, or the buyer of the product, but also Food Maven makes a nice profit uh, in the middle providing those services. And then whatever doesn't rapidly sell, we donate for hunger relief and we keep food out of landfills. So, so we really, I think the economic impact is meaningful. We need to be better stewards of food. But as a society, we also really need to think about food from a, from a hunger, a food justice, as well as an environmental perspective. Uh, Patrick, I understand that you've got at least 700 suppliers and customers in Colorado. What are the specific challenges of moving into higher density areas? 
Yeah, so it is. So we, we our, our model is really focused on metro service areas. So we've got a rapid logistics model that's very different than the way the kind of normal food system um, works. And so we're making sure that we get to suppliers when the food is available, because a lot of times the problem is it's just in the way. The next trucks are coming. It's got to go. And so we've got this very rapid capability to do that. We do all the food handling, food safety, and then applying, you know, Internet technologies to make a market and deliver all of that within 48 hours. I was going to ask about that. You know, in advertising right now, you have this amazing world that looks at the stock market where ads are uh, both offered and sold in in milliseconds. Just about 30 seconds left. Is that the kind of auction system you've got going to? It is. So we're doing pricing algorithms to optimize, applying big data to come capabilities. And it is very analogous to kind of an arbitrage market in the ad space, but with the physicality of food. I'm getting hungry. What about you, Paul? I don't know. I think he's, he's getting Paul. hungry. That's You're Paul. Pimp. Yeah, that that's me. I don't know. I think it sounds like an interesting idea, right? But I don't necessarily want 15,000 pounds of tri-tip. I saw you big potatoes, small chickens. I'll tell you what this isn't. It's not small potatoes. Walter Robb former Whole Foods CEO, and Patrick Vatima, uh, the uh, CEO of Food Maven. Thanks, guys. A really fascinating, interesting company. Shalak Jobamputra joins us right now, managing partner at Future Perfect Ventures. When you think Future Perfect, you got to think blockchain and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and all the joys and insanity that has been a market uh, that has been bidding cryptocurrencies up like crazy. Um, Jalak, uh, talk to me about, well, first, describe to me what Future Perfect Ventures is briefly, but and then talk to me about sort of one cryptocurrency investment business that you thought was worth investing in. Sure, it's great to be here and uh, talk cryptocurrency. So Future Perfect Ventures is an early stage venture fund that I founded four years ago. And that was around the same time that I went to my first uh, Bitcoin conference in 2013. I was lucky enough to participate and invest in the early days of the internet. I started uh, my career in the technology sector in 1993. And When I started the Venture Capital Fund, I wanted to focus on what's the next paradigm-shifting technology. We know about the trillions of dollars of value creation that the internet uh, enabled. And I wanted to think about what was next, what was on that level. And when I went to this Bitcoin conference, uh, it really gelled the opportunity for me. This idea of a world where computers can verify transactions instead of all the intermediaries we currently have that we employ uh, and all the errors and the fraud that result from all these intermediaries. And I started investing uh, in, in startups that were focused on building out the infrastructure to right, make so it can more you say, scalable. Sorry, say again. So the computers would do what? The computers actually verify transactions in, through mathematical algorithms. So what happens now? With, with most so so I go to uh, Amazon and I enter my visa card and I buy you know a hoverboard because I can't get enough hoverboards and uh, and and how does that get verified now isn't it already verified by computer well there's a huge fee that visa actually uh, charges to merchants to actually forward that capital or that that money that of the transaction and so you you start to have chargebacks. Uh, if if the person with the credit card doesn't end up paying the credit card issuer, the bank, for that transaction, uh, it's the credit card issuer that's on the hook 
for that transaction. So it's actually not, it's actually uh, offering credit. Uh, That's why they're called credit cards. So it's not this immediate uh, verification where you know the person purchasing the hoverboard actually has the the cash to pay for that hoverboard. $4.99 in case you're wondering. Oh, well. For a good hoverboard. That's pretty expensive. It's, It's worth it. I'm not going anywhere near your hoverboard. Uh, uh, Jalik, I, I want to understand uh, something here, which is that this verification process that uh, would exist if you were to use, let's say, a Bitcoin to purchase something. First of all, it would get rid of the bank as the institution in between the buyer and the seller. So the bank would no longer be there. Plus, you would no longer have the risk of any currency changes or fluctuations because you are transacting in something that is not going to be translated into another currency. It will remain a Bitcoin. Is that accurate? It is if the sender and the recipient both want to keep it uh, as, as Bitcoin, or I should say the recipient wants to hold it as Bitcoin. Now, I've actually invested in a few companies. One of them is uh, Abra. The other is called BitPesa, which is a Bitcoin platform for Africa, where uh, they actually handle that back-end uh, FX transaction. So when I'm referring to FX, I'm talking Bitcoin a fiat. When you're actually sending money uh, within Africa, uh, they're often three or four currency transactions that can occur, which add to the fees and the FX risks. So even instead Bitcoin, of that, there's only be, yeah. one transaction that's happening, which is a Bitcoin a fiat. So even that is is more efficient than if you were just holding it in Bitcoin. How are you finding these ideas? It seems like everywhere, I, in my world, I, I find Bitcoin entrepreneurs, uh, you know, everywhere I shake a stick. Well, send them my way. Uh, <laughs> come <laughs> to San Francisco. There's certainly been a lot more in interest yeah. uh, in, in, in the sector. Let me just bring this Bloomberg headline to you that Senator Bob Corker says that he will vote for uh, the uh, wow. tax bill after earlier of voting. No, we're going to get more details uh, as we... Uh, get more news from Washington, but just wanted to bring that to your attention. GOP Senator Bob Corker going to vote for the tax bill after earlier voting no. Uh, just finally, uh, Jalik, is, um, is, it, is it assured when you buy a Bitcoin, do you know that you really have the key? It depends on the platform okay. you buy it on. So there are certain exchanges and, and wallets where they will hold the key for you. Uh, Coinbase is an example of one. Uh, I'm an investor in the largest cryptocurrency wallet in the world called Blockchain. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is indeed. It's also a good time for us to get a talk with Jeff Crumplin, the Chief Investment Officer at Riverpoint Capital Management, friend of the show. 
who joins us for the drive to the close. And uh, Jeff, uh, I don't know why. Maybe it's the second to last Friday before Christmas. I don't know. I, if, there seems to be a, a, summer, a summary nature about this week and the trading this week where people are trying to get things done uh, with a look to the end of the year. In fact, Carol's off playing Elf right now. Well, I uh, enjoy talking to you today, Corey, and with Tim. So, yeah, uh, we'll have fun uh, on this Friday. Yeah, so uh, second fiddle in my case, but uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so when you look back on this year, what surprised you about how the market uh, traded uh, equities? You know, I, we kind of went against the grain going into this year, and we felt like this back in 2016 too. We were looking for double-digit returns in the market, so I, I think the surprise factor might have been while we were looking for strength and double-digit returns, I think we were ready to put uh, our foot on the brake just a little bit if rates would surge and inflation would you know, move up as the economy strengthened and, and earnings came in at strong levels, and we just didn't get that. So rather than seeing a 2,500 handle on the S&P, we're at 2675, and we did think the risks were to the upside, but uh, we just didn't get the uh, the inflation and the interest rates that would have, you know, been a warning signal here. And so that's why we're we're at higher levels than uh, we even thought. So, so, uh, so do you keep an eye on that inflation thing? We had an inter- uh, Joe Weisenthal when we were talking to him earlier today, uh, Bloomberg Markets uh, editor and uh, host of What You Miss on Bloomberg Television, uh, who joins us at the top of our show every day. He had a really interesting chart that showed the 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 five thirty chart. Well, I'm maybe I'm calling it the wrong thing, Pim, but it no, showed, no, that's it. It was it was the spread uh, between the five, the five, between the five year yeah, and so the thirty. Essentially, short the five year and long the thirty, which essentially is a longer duration. Uh, bet and what it really showed that with with the collapse in that spread, it really showed that the bond market at least doesn't believe that inflation is coming anytime soon, and believes that therefore rates will stay low. Yeah, and which is not what I the think, Fed is telling us. Well, and I I think that uh, there's a lot of technical factors too that come into play here with rates so low internationally. Uh, is it because uh, the bond market thinks demand is going to be soft and inflation will be low, or is it just that you've got a lot of buying coming to the U.S. market because international rates are so low? Um, you know, only time will tell, but we do think that inflation will probably uh, heat up a little bit more next year uh, as we see some strength in the economy. And uh, we don't think it will be crippling, but I'll tell you, if we did see it uh, heat up in a big way, we again would look to soften our equity exposure, even if the economy uh, was strong. And I think that is the risk that we have going into 18, that the economy outperforms the stock market. Jeff, can you speak to the issue of when to sell and if there are profits to be taken this year, if you've got the NASDAQ up nearly 30%, the Dow up 25 the S&P up nearly 20 should you take some money off the table and just sit for a while? Well, we uh, right now are just a little bit to the right of center of our midpoint in uh, in our equity target. So for any individual investor, we'll say if you're a balanced investor, you know, your equity exposure should be somewhere in that 55 to 75% range. We would be close to the midpoint, 65 or a little bit above that right now. So we're comfortable kind of hugging that just a little bit above what the midpoint would be. And I don't think we would expect to take that down because we see strong earnings growth 
strong economic momentum. Again, the thing that would get us to lighten up here would be if rates would start to increase significantly next year and the market continued to move up, that would be the point in time if we saw the 10-year Treasury crack 3% and, and be moving up, that would be a signal for us to kind of pull back a little bit here. And any particular area of the market, for example, in equities, are there any particular industry groups that you would favor and those that you would avoid? Yeah, we have been balanced throughout this year. A lot of people are saying run to value, and we felt that you should not abandon growth. Uh, after the post-election run, when people were kind of saying run to value, we've been very balanced. And the sectors that we like, we continue to like uh, technology uh, selectively, even though it's done really well. Earnings growth is still strongest in, in the S&P 500 uh, right now in that group. We like financials from a cyclical standpoint. And we like selective consumer discretionary. You, know, you don't need retailers, and I know they're bouncing. Uh, and having a little bit of a, a run here, but we still like experience. So the Carnival Cruise Lines, uh, the home-related, like uh, D.R. Horton, um, Fortune Brands Home Security, uh, those types of stocks. Wait, um, so you, we, let me ask like, you this real quick. You like home builders, even though mortgage deductions are going to be suddenly uh, limited uh, massively uh, for the first time uh, in in our lifetime. Well, you're talking about large mortgages, and D.R. Horton is the most balanced home builder in the market. You're selective, uh, very strong at um, uh, first-time home buyers, and certainly those that are trading down. So you're talking about a company that's looking at double-digit revenue growth and earnings growth, and it's priced at you know mid-teens. That's pretty darn attractive with a two and a half percent yield. So yeah, we're not overly alarmed by that niche or component that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have a headwind in it. I wish a $500,000 mortgage was a large mortgage, but I don't live in that world. Yeah, you don't live, yeah, clearly you don't. Uh, Jeff Krumpelman, thank you very much. He is the Chief Investment Officer for Riverpoint Capital Management. They're based in Cincinnati. I'm Pim Fox. He's Corey Johnson. This is Bloomberg. Well, he comes with his own song as well. Dr. Ian Lustbader is Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU, and he joins us in our 1130 studio. Always a pleasure to have you here, doctor. Uh, maybe we could talk about cancer and the risk factors that are associated with cancer because they are modifiable, if that's a word. It's something that you can actually have some degree of control over, at least in some types of cancer. Exactly. Uh, right, right as usual, and thanks for having me. Uh, so last month, there was an article uh, published by the American uh, Cancer Society in uh, the journal Cancer, uh, a clinical journal for clinicians. Uh, and it did show uh, a list uh, of modifiable risk factors for many cancers. Cancer is the second leading cause of death in the United States, below heart disease. Heart disease is about 23%. Cancer, 22.5%. Cost is estimated anywhere between 88 to $124 billion a year. And even though mortality has been reduced, there's still about 1.6 million new cases a year. So prevention uh, in any way would be helpful. And what this study showed is that many cancers' uh, risk factors are modifiable really up to about 42% uh, 
uh, of cancers could be reduced by changing behavior. Now, there are specific cancers that are related to specific behavioral characteristics. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, for well, example, smoking. Uh, I was going to say, like, well, well, don't smoke. Okay, that's hard. Very good. So, so the modifiable risk factors are, let's talk about them, and then let's talk about the mechanism. So cigarette smoking, uh, number one, excess body weight, number two, alcohol intake, consumption of red and processed meats, a low consumption of fruits and vegetables, a low consumption of fiber and calcium, physical inactivity, sunlight, ultraviolet radiation, and there are six cancer-associated infections, all of which raise um, the risk of developing a variety of cancers. We can talk about how that works, and to some degree, we don't understand the mechanisms completely. For example, obesity raises the risk of esophageal cancer, breast cancer. Uh, The exact mechanism isn't clear, Uh, Insulin and a variety of hormones are secreted by more fat cells. So we know that activity, uh, physical activity and and lower weight uh, decreases the incidence of cancer. Some things like human papillomavirus, we give kids the Gardasil uh, HPV shot. That's almost 100% associated with cervical cancer. So there are some very clear associations. That's one of the highest to other... um, risk factors that raise your risk, but clearly there are other factors involved as well. But what we want to do is modify, reduce what can be reduced. Yeah, and uh, so, so some of these, it sounds like things we know, but they're sort of, what, so what's new in this information? So don't be overweight, exercise, don't drink too much, don't smoke at all. Well, I think that uh, we know obesity is an epidemic, and and there are a variety of theories why that is. Uh, Some people think it's early antibiotic exposure. Other people think it's the sugary drinks, the high fructose uh, drinks that are are everywhere. At least Mike Bloomberg thought that. Um, And so we do need to intervene. How we can get everyone to uh, lose weight, exercise can be a challenge. But certainly we know smoking probably causes somewhere in in the 40 to 50 percent range of lung cancers. So that impacting that would be a huge cost uh, and social burden. I want to ask you about the ability of the body itself to fight cancer, because in doing a lot of research on biotechnology companies, they seem to focus on this ability of your own body to fight a to the buildup of a tumor and that can be related to protein buildup that is in the wrong place at the wrong time in your body so there are a lot of different pathways for cancer we we really have not isolated all of them this is really talking more about prevention and decreasing environmental uh, injury uh, environmental including being overweight and lack of fiber uh, once someone has a cancer, uh, unfortunately, there are a variety of, of mechanisms, T-cells and different pathways. You're, you're thinking about new breakthroughs in um, uh, toll receptors and PD-1 receptors or a variety of pathways. Cancer is smart. Often with initial chemotherapy, it recurs or grows and forms another pathway uh, once you block certain pathways to Uh, attack the cancer. So it's a complicated process, and that's why it's so important to try and reduce risk factors uh, early. And why it's also important to repeat 
the uh, ways in which you can at least attempt to mitigate the chances of uh, getting cancer over and over again, whether it is smoking or uh, being overweight, eat more fruits, vegetables, fiber, and don't eat it, so much red meat. Exactly. You can also see your doctor and be checked. There are infections like H. pylori in the stomach, hepatitis B, which actually affects Should you the ask DNA. your doctor specifically to check yes. you? Because they won't offer to do it. Well, we're supposed to now screen for things like hepatitis C, which is closely associated with liver cancer. They're treatable. Uh, and curable. Hepatitis C, as you know, thanks to Gilead, is uh, 97% curable. So it's important to learn about these HPV vaccine and, and get tested and treated. Thank you very much. Dr. Ian Lustbader is Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Medical Center. This is Bloomberg. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Is indeed, yes, time for Movers and Shakers here on Bloomberg Radio. Corey Johnson and Carol Masser not here. Pim Fox is here with me to help me take a look at some of the big movement in the markets today. Of course, I always want to see how we're looking, uh, not just for the day, but for the year. Uh, but let's look. Dow Jones Industrial up 143 points, S&P up 24, and the NASDAQ up 80. So for the year, we're looking at a rise in the Dow of 24.7%. The, the S&P 500, perhaps a better measure, 19.5%. And the NASDAQ for the year up 28.9%, Pim. That's, that is quite a year. Yes, it is. Let me just tell you about the uh, number of stocks making moves higher. Uh, 426 members of the S&P 500 post gains. 77 stocks are lower and to remain unchanged. I just want to point out uh, CSX Corp. Oh, uh, I was going to go there. Good move. Good you call. Do no, go ahead. No, good call. No, go All ahead. right. Down about 7.5%. Now, this uh, really comes because of uh, Chief Executive Hunter Harrison, who is the former head of both major Canadian railways. He's obviously current president and CEO of CSX. He is on medical leave uh, due to what the company called unexpected complications from a recent illness. Now, CSX wouldn't disclose the nature of the illness that has uh, afflicted Harrison. He's 73, and he was hired in March uh, after several years of leading those Canadian railways. And uh, the shares, as I just mentioned, down about 7.5% today. I'm Pim Fox. I ain't classy, but I ain't cheap. And that is the problem with Sirius XM Radio, right? Sirius XM Holdings. Sirius, many of our listeners listening right now on Sirius on XM 119, Channel 119. We're glad indeed. to have you all across the country listening to us. Uh, Sirius XM shares, however, are not enjoying the show or not enjoying anything right now. Stocks down 5% on the day. Big decliner. Uh, that is because the royalty for some of the things you hear on Sirius XM Radio as a blended average across all the stations is going up. 
they announced that uh, beginning January 1 and lasting through to the end of uh, 2022, uh, it will be 15.5% uh, of gross revenues, uh, a rate of 7.5% of, of gross revenues of pre-existing subscription services, according to the Copyright Royalty Board, which decides what they have to pay for the music that they play, actually not what they're paying to listen to Bloomberg. But as a result, uh, they are going to have to pay, uh, it's an unfavorable outcome, uh, say some of the analysts, Susquehanna looking at this, saying that they've got 15 days to fight this, but an increase in the royalty rates, it was 11%. For that to jump to 15.5% of gross revenues uh, is is not great news uh, for them trying to keep costs on a serious XM holdings. So the stock down uh, after the royalty rate jumps, they're going to they're try to fight this, of course, but that's a 40% increase in the rate that Sirius uh, XM has been uh, charged there and a big change for them. But I still think uh, Sirius XM Radio is worth every penny to the subscribers. I just want to mention quickly, Akamai uh, Technologies, uh, the shares are up 1.5% on the close, but we're going to follow this in the aftermarket because uh, Elliott Management, filing their 13D, has taken a stake in Akamai, and uh, this according to uh, the uh, 13D filing, and we're going to find out more details and uh, how much they've taken, but right now shares of uh, Akamai Technology uh, moving higher in the after-hours trade, up uh, 1.5%. Great. Well, let's look at volatility right now. The volatility index really just unbelievably low today after, you know, it wasn't too many days ago the volatility index was trading up above 12, 13, uh, 9.39 on the day. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr. Hey, Mr. Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist and blogger at MLive Go. What have you got for the uh, stock of the day? And can I just tell you, you know, I mentioned Elliott Management and uh, Akamai uh, Technologies uh, looking uh, at their 13D filing. I just checked yeah. it out. 1.6 million shares is the uh, number in the filing, and that'll uh, come out to be just a little bit less than 1% uh, for Akamai. Pardon, Although Dave. they actually talk about a six and a half percent stake, presumably there may be options in there, Correct. and so what, so on. In any case, now we turn to the stock of the day, and that would Let's. be Remax Holdings. It's a residential real estate agency with a red, white, and blue hot air balloon as its logo. You might have seen it. Company's website says the design was inspired by a promotional balloon flown years ago at a festival in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This happens to be one of the biggest balloon fests in the country. But I digress. Remax began in 1973 and went public four decades later under the ticker RMAX. The shares more than tripled in the first four years of trading and peaked in October. Then they faltered. Remax fell 20% last month as the company failed to put out third quarter results on time. The delay stemmed from an internal investigation into a $2.4 million loan between its top two executives. Co-founder, chairman, and CEO Dave Linegar made the personal loan to Adam Contos, who became his co-CEO in May. Now, both executives acknowledged the loan. It's just an issue now of whether it was proper. Today, Remax took another hit after being cut to the equivalent of sell from hold at J.P. Morgan. And analyst Anthony Pallone cited the possibility that proposed federal limits on mortgage interest and property tax deductions will hurt the housing market. Wasn't the only stock he cut a rating on. Uh, he did the same with the uh, Realogy Holdings, which had Century 21 and other real estate brokers. That said, Remax, 
fell 8.4% and closed at its lowest price in 13 months. Wow. Great story, Dave. Thank you. Dave Wilson, our stock editor. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.